The scripture today comes from Luke 10, starting in chapter 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. You may be seated. Good morning. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Good to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 10. We're looking at verses 38 through 42. That was the verses that were just read. You can follow along. Reset is our current teaching series from burnout to balance. And the title of this weekend's message is Keep Your Tank Full. Got two questions for you. You can ask and discuss it with the people sitting around you. Here's the first question. It's on your notes. When you drive, how low do you let the gas tank get before you fill it up? That's your first question. Here's your second question you can discuss. Have you ever run out of gas even when the warning light told you that you were running on empty? So when do you refill your fuel tank? And then have you ever run out of gas? Real quick, discuss it with the folks sitting around you. I'll give you about 20, 30 seconds to do that and we'll talk about it. Okay, by show of hands, how many refill your fuel tank when it's only a quarter of the way down? A quarter of the way down? Oh my goodness. You guys don't want to be stuck with, a, with an empty, empty tank. How many do it when it's a half, half tank down? Half, half. How about a quarter? How about fumes when it's running on fumes? Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. So my wife has a car that actually tells you how many miles you've got before you run out. Anybody have a car like that? Okay, so, we, so she typically pushes it along with me, pushes it, ah, we still got enough, you know, distance to get to the uh, service station to fill up. So we kind of, we gauge it on that. We can still drive here, but then we'll be able to stop by the service station if we don't forget. And so that's a little bit crazy. You can't do that with my truck. My truck's old school, okay? My truck's old school, so you don't know. It just shows, hey, you better, the light comes on, you better get it pretty quick. Or you're going to be out of fuel. How many have ever, show of hands, have ever run out of fuel out there, even when you know that the fuel tank was low? Oh, there's a lot of you. Okay, so how does this relate to our spiritual life? It relates in a lot of different ways. Here's the parallel. It's on your notes. Do you know how to spiritually watch your gauges, spiritually speaking, recognize your limits, and keep your tank, tank full? You know how to do that. That's what we're going to talk about here today. This is critical to not burning out. This is critical to not burning out. And in fact, what we're going to learn here, and I think what our text teaches us, is it answers three questions. You know, what is an empty tank? What is a full tank? 
And then how do we keep our tanks, our spiritual tanks full? Now, the, the basis of this whole series, we kicked it off last weekend, it's based on, on Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. I'll just, I'll just quote verse 28. And it's our Savior, it's our King, it's uh, our Messiah, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He invites us and He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There is rest found in Him. If you'll come to Him, if you come to Him, you will find rest unlike you've ever experienced before. Now, if you, if you think you've come to Him and you don't find rest, then you really haven't come to Him. You need to learn what that means to come to Him because believe me, you come to Him. And I don't think it's a one and done. I think it's an ongoing coming to Him, having a relationship with Him. But if you learn to come to Him, believe me, that will eliminate the anxiety and the worry and the stress stress in your life, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, this is not a technique to be mastered. This is a person to encounter and to engage and to enjoy. He's inviting us to Himself. That's what this whole series is about. If we will come to Him, we will find rest. There is rest in Him, regardless of what you're going through, regardless of what you're experiencing, regardless of the people you're interacting with. You can find rest for your souls. That's where we're headed here uh, this morning with this study, learning how to keep your tank full. But before we dive into the notes and and look at this text, let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me once again? Let's ask for, for God's help. Lord Jesus, we accept your invitation to the burdened and heavy laden to come to you and find rest, a rest and peace and contentment that all the sleep and vacations and medications in this world can never give us. We speak your name, Jesus, over Desert Breeze this weekend. Because of who you are and what you've done for us, there is healing in your name for those who are sick. There is power in your name for those who are weak. There is love and joy and peace in your name for those who are bitter and anxious and depressed. There is fullness of life in your name for all who put their faith in you. Manifest your presence to us as we study your word. Teach us how to watch our spiritual gauges, recognize our limits, and keep our spiritual tanks full, we pray in your beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. So take a look at that first question. What is an empty tank? There are three characteristics. We see this in the life of Martha in our text. And the first fill in the blank on your notes, what is an empty tank? First characteristic, insecure about God's love. That's a sign that you have an empty tank. Look at verses 40 and 41. First of all, verse 40. Martha goes to Jesus, says, Lord, do you not care? So she's questioning whether or not he actually loves her. Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Notice Jesus' tender response to Martha, verse 41. But the Lord answered, Martha, Martha. Tender words. So in Semitic language, the doubling of a word means magnification. Let me give you a couple examples of that. 2 Samuel 18, David hears of his son's death and he says, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. Luke 22, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. 
How often I have longed to take you under my wings as a mother hen takes her chicks. So Jesus here is counseling and convicting Martha out of deep love and tremendous compassion. Not to be confused with condemnation. He's not condemning her. That's the work of the enemy. By the way, you need to know the difference between the two. You need to know the difference between condemnation and convictions. I oftentimes see Christians confuse those. God never works with condemnation. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. John 3, 17. So he convicts us. Condemnation will push you away from Christ. Conviction woos you, draws you back to Christ. So you're sitting in a service, we're studying together, something nails you, you go, ah, yeah, that's me. I need to repent. I need to turn from what I'm doing and put my faith in Jesus. That's, yeah, that's a wrong path. He's convicting you because he loves you and he's drawing you to himself to free you, to fulfill you, to form you more and more into his image. And so what Jesus is doing here with Martha, he's contending for Martha's greatness that's the way the Holy Spirit convicts us. So as we study, the Holy Spirit convicts us. He's drawing us closer to Christ. We turn from sin. We're turning towards the Savior. That's a good thing in our lives. That's such a healthy thing. That's a healthy process that he wants to do. Now, Jesus is also teaching us some really great relationship skills here. You know, when, when you're in a situation where the, the conversation is getting heated, that's what's happening here with Martha. She's coming down on Jesus and her sister, coming after them. And so what does Jesus do? He de-escalates the situation. A gentle answer turns away wrath. A harsh word stirs up anger. He gives a gentle answer. Martha, Martha, listen to me. Very tender words from our Savior. And so that's Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath. A harsh word stirs up anger. You always connect before you correct or bring conviction. And so there's that balance in our, in our relationships is that there's got to be a good layer of grace, love, good foundation of that so then you can speak truth, bring correction, conviction, counseling. So that's just really healthy for us. Now, What's interesting, the word that she uses here, do you not care? It's the same word that's used in 1 Peter 5, 7. Are you guys familiar with 1 Peter 5, 7? It says, cast your cares upon him because he what? He cares for you. Same word. Do you not care? Do you not care about me? That's Martha speaking to Jesus. And of course, it's all over the scripture. Yes. Yes, he cares for you. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. He has deep affection for you. By the way, if you've said that you've cast your cares on him and you still are struggling with fear and anxiety and worry, well, you really haven't cast your cares on him, okay? You need to learn what that means. As we stated, you've got to keep coming to him so that you can find rest for your soul. Listen to me. No one cares for you like Jesus, and no one can take care of you like Jesus. He will take better care of you than what you'll take care of you. It's absolutely amazing. You can trust Him. You can rest in Him. Cast your cares upon Him. Cast your anxieties upon Him because He cares for you. No one cares for you like Jesus. No one can take care of you like Jesus. To know that the Lord of the universe loves you cares for you, 
is the strongest foundation that any human being can have. I mean, if you live in the reality of his love and his care for you, man, you are going to be rock solid. You're going to be unshakable. You're going to be unoffendable. You'll be unstoppable. But oftentimes we don't live there. Martha's certainly not living there. She's questioning Jesus. Do you, do you not care for me? I love what the psalmist says, David, in Psalm 8. He says, when I, when I consider the the heavens, the work of your fingers, the stars and the moon, how you have set them in place. What is man that you care for him and the son of man? Or the, or what is man that you, you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And, and let me give you a commentary of what I think he's saying here. I think he's basically, he just, he just captivated by the, the whole psalm starts, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth that you would think thoughts of me and care about me. And I think what he's saying here is that we are microscopic specks of dust in the vastness of the universe, and yet we fill the mind and the heart of God. I mean, think about that. Reflect on that. He does care about us. We fill his mind and his heart. You can rest in that. But if I'm not, if I'm not living there, this insecure about God's love is going to play its way out into internal restlessness. That's your next fill in the blank, internal restlessness. Look at verse 40. But Martha was distracted with much serving. The word distracted here is, means to un, be unable to concentrate because your mind is preoccupied. I hope you're not distracted this morning, okay? I hope you're not preoccupied with something else, and too often our lives can be like that. But distracted means unable to concentrate because your mind is preoccupied. And uh, how many have ever done this before, that you're sitting down to eat your favorite dessert? I'll just say one of my favorite desserts, uh, coconut cream pie. And you sit there and you start eating it and you've eaten most of it and then realize that you were distracted and never really enjoyed the whole piece of pie. Anybody there? Have you ever experienced that before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a sin. That's a horrible sin, that you would be distracted from enjoying coconut cream pie or your favorite dessert and not giving you an opportunity to worship God for these great flavors and the satisfaction of all that. Yeah, yeah, you're distracted. Too often we, list, we miss out on the moments of life with our family and friends and great food and great music because we are distracted. Now, we talked about that last weekend. If you didn't get a chance and you weren't here or you didn't listen online, I'd encourage you to go back online and listen. You can go to our uh, YouTube channel or you can go to our website and listen to the message. Download the notes. I would encourage you to take notes and write it down. Take the notes with you. This is a set of notes from, from last uh, weekend. Actually, it's not this. This is this weekend's. This is uh, last weekend's notes. Set of notes from last weekend's and, and file them away. But better yet, before you file them away, sit down with your spouse and walk through it and say, hey, here's how God's speaking to my life. This is where I need to bring change. This is how he's comforting me. Here's how he's convicting me. And work through it with your family. Sit down with your kids. My wife and I used to do that when our kids were at home. We'd walk through what we were learning and communicate it to our kids. Better yet, you got a, you got a family member, you got a co-worker that's struggling with stress, say, hey, we just went through a study. Go online, listen to it. Let's sit down and talk. We'll meet you over here at the local coffee shop. We'll work through this stuff. And if you, even if you filed it, you've got the resource so that later on down the road, you're going to be stressed. Okay, what was that I was supposed to learn to apply to my life? Pull it out. Look at it. Now, last weekend, we talked about the difference between being busy and being in a hurry. You got to know where you are in that. Nothing wrong with being busy. You don't want to be in a hurry. 
We talked about how being in a hurry, when you're in a hurry, you're preoccupied, you're unable to be fully present. It's an inward condition of the soul. There's something going on. There's something driving that you've got to be aware of. And then it's spiritually draining. Nothing will drain you like being in a hurry. And it causes me to be unavailable to God. That's where Martha is. She is distracted with much serving. Look at verse 41. The Lord responds, you are anxious and troubled about many things. The word anxious here means torn into pieces and pulled in many directions. <laughs> you ever feel like that? I do. I do more often than I should, but torn into pieces and pulled in many directions. The word troubled is a fascinating word that means to make a noise or uproar, to be turbulent, to well tumultuously. So Martha's throwing a fit. She's getting after it. She's pretty assertive here. In fact, the idea behind this word is that you're being tossed along like a capsized boat, which is being pushed along either by a wave or a stream instead of being able to power itself. So Jesus says, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Now, I gave you some verses here for you to study on your own. And these are just part of your arsenal for dealing with stress and anxiety and worry. Philippians 4, 6 through 7, Psalm 55, 22, and Matthew 6, 25 through 34. All part of your notes, by the way. We don't cover everything that's on the notes. I pack it full so that you've got plenty of resources. Listen, you have no excuse whatsoever. A lot of people say, well, I don't know what to study. Right here. Here it is. This will keep you busy all week long. Take a couple of points each day, study, meditate on it, look up the cross-references, ask Christ to help you to apply it to your life. It will transform your life, okay? So it's all right there, and so study those out. Now, distraction, anxiety, being troubled happens. This is what Martha's experiencing. Distraction, anxiety, and being troubled happens when the superficiality of my relationship with God meets the realities of life. All that is, exp is exposing is that I have a low view of God. I have a superficial relationship with God. Anxiety, worry, and stress is saying, I have a low view of God, a, a small relationship with God. And so it shouldn't bring condemnation. It should bring conviction. It should draw me into that relationship with Christ so that I can have a rich, robust relationship with God as I face the realities of life. You guys tracking with me? So here's, here's the idea. You've heard me say this before. Faith is not the denial of reality. But it's a declaration that God is greater than all my highs and lows in life. I can face anything with Him if I have an accurate view of who it is that walks through my day with me. And I've cultivated that intimacy with Him. Because there's nothing, nothing quite like that. Now, so what happens here? So what is an empty tank? Insecure about God's love that's going to produce this internal restlessness. And guess how that's going to be seen in our life? Here's the next one. Irritability with others. Irritability with others. Look at verse 40. <laughs> this cracks me up. Every time I read it, it's so funny. And she went up to him, that is Jesus, and said, Lord, 
Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. There's a major contradiction. When you refer to Jesus as, as Lord and then proceed to boss him around, <laughs> a little bit of contradiction there. Lord, you need to do this. Wait, 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 wait. Who's Lord here? Who's calling the shots? And so that's really, that's the epitome of a low view of God when you begin to boss God around. And that's what she's doing. <clears throat> Now, what's interesting about this, you need to have emotional intelligence. You need to have enough mindfulness, which most of us don't have, because a lot of this becomes second nature. It's instinct in life. We don't realize that we have insecure, we're insecure about God's love. We have internal restlessness. We have irritability with others. Unless someone in our life has a close enough relationship with us and says, hey, uh, you okay? And my wife is so tender and kind oftentimes that while we're <clears throat> While we're driving, uh, she will put her hand on my arm like this and pat it. And she'll say, is everything okay? And I'll say, yes, of course it's okay. <laughs> Why do you ask? Because you just ran three cars off the road back there. <laughs> well, they weren't driving right, okay? Get off my back. So, and, and over time, then I realized, ah, I got... Let me see, let's see, I'm insecure about God's love, I got internal restlessness, and I've got irritability with others. Woohoo! I got an empty tank. Why is that? So that's, so that's just called mindfulness. I gotta be aware. Now, here's what's interesting is that uh, Martha is doing something here that we're gonna talk more about next week. And I want you to very quickly just discuss it with the folks sitting around you. I'll only give you three options. She's not managing her anger appropriately. There's three ways that we mismanage our anger. Anger's God-given, it's a gift from God, it's part of our emotional makeup, we're image bearers of God. We'll talk about that next week. We're gonna talk about these three different ways, but I'm just gonna list the three different ways, and I want you to identify which of these three different ways is Mary mismanaging her, not Mary, but Martha is mismanaging her anger. And what of these three ways? That's pretty obvious. You can discuss it with the folks next to you. The first one is, is, would be classified as open aggression. It's where you, you blow up, you fight. I call it the gunslinger. Gunslinger comes in with guns blazing and waits to see who's still standing after the dust has settled. You don't have to wonder what the gunslinger uh, is thinking because they will tell you what they're thinking. They always do. Okay, that's that person that's very assertive. They express their anger. This tends to destroy relationships overtly. And they tend to be argumentative, blunt, critical, defensive, emotional, forceful. They'll shoot you right in the front, okay? Right in the front. Now, the, the, the next way is they clam up. The first one is blow up. The second one is clam up. So I'm kind of more like the first one. My wife is more like the second one. Opposites attract. And so she's more flight. The first one's fight. This one's flight. I call it the Eskimo, kind of the freeze out. I'll just ignore you and maybe you'll go away. I'm angry at you, so I'll give you the cold shoulder. So it's the suppress, it's closed aggression. This destroys relationships covertly. So the, the, the one that blows up the fighter, the gunslinger will shoot you in the front. This person will shoot you in the back, okay? Because it's, it's very covert in how they destroy relationships. They're cold, obstinate, silent treatment, sulk, pout. The, the third one is that you just give up. It's, it's you fawn. I'll explain that next week. It's more of the chameleon. You repress. It's hidden aggression. So you got blow up, clam up, give up. Turn to the person next to you and see which one do you think is, represents Martha here in this story. Real quick. Pretty simple. Do it real quick.
Does it seem like Martha's a fighter? Yeah, yeah she's blow up. She's a fighter. She's not a flighter. She comes right and f squares off with Jesus and her sister Mary. You know exactly what she's thinking. She's going to tell everybody. It's almost like this is her home, actually. And I think, we, I think research, and if you really understand it, I think this was passed on as an inheritance. And so she's the oldest in the family. She's their caretaker over the home. She's taking care of the home. But she's missing something here, and she's not managing her anger appropriately. In fact, next week we'll talk more about this. Uh, Ephesians 4, 26 through 27 says, Be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil a foothold. It's one of the ways that we give the devil a foothold. So if we don't know how to deal with our past hurts, they tend to stockpile and then they tend to uh, snowball on us over time. If I don't know how to process that and work through that stuff, you have to come back next week and we'll talk more about that. Don't go to bed angry is the title of next weekend's message as we work through that. James 4, 1 through 4, it says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? He's asking that question. And he goes on and he nails it. He says, it's your inordinate desire within you. Your inordinate desire. Now, one of the questions we asked from uh, our study last weekend, and this was really critical to understanding our lives, are you aware of what drives you to overload your life and to be in a hurry or to be so distracted? What is it that drives you to be in a hurry or to be so distracted? There's something driving that. How many remember what I said last week in the Rocky Syndrome? Show of hands. Show of hands, okay. Not very many of you remember that, okay. Uh, Rocky Syndrome is, remember, his girlfriend asked Rocky, why do you want to go the distance in the boxing round? He said, if I go the distance, I'll know I'm not a bum. All I want to do is go the distance. I'll know I'm not a bum. Every one of us says that about something. If it's not about Christ, if we don't find our identity in Christ, we're going to find our identity in something in creation as opposed to the Creator. And we're saying that about something that we achieve, we accomplish, we acquire, whatever it might be. It might be getting married, having kids, having our, our kids turn out good. These are all good things, but these good things have become ultimate things in our life. And we base our identity on these things. You see what Martha's doing? She's not working from her identity. She's working for her identity. You see what Rocky's doing? Rocky's not working from his identity. He's working for his identity. That's the result of the fall. We were meant to look into the eyes of our maker, to walk in the garden in the cool of the day, look into the eyes of our maker and receive all the glory that we would ever need, all the love, all the security, all the significance, and then go out in life with that fullness, with that abundance. But because we rebelled against God, it subsequently alienated us from God and left us empty on the inside. And so we are desperately trying to fill the bottomless pit in our soul with anything other than the maker, and it will never satisfy us. And that's what drives our lives. You've got to be in touch with that. You've got to realize that. It is a deep restlessness to prove that my life matters and is significant. And so this is what it looks like in our culture. I am what I do. I am what I do. My performance. Look at my performance. Look what I've accomplished. Look what I've achieved. Or I am what I have. Look at my possessions. Look at the pleasures we enjoy as a family. Or I am what people say about me. It's popularity. Listen to me. If you're following Christ, it's not what you do. It's what Christ has done for you. That's your identity. It's not what you have in material, temporal 
things. It's what you have in eternal things in him that is your identity. And these eternal things are out of this world compared to any material things or temporal things. When you understand what you have in him in light of what you could ever have in, in this material world, this material world is nothing compared to what we have in him. That's your sense of identity. It's not what people say about you. It's what he says about you. It's what he says about you. That's where you get your identity. Therefore, then you're going out in life when you understand that out of an abundance rather than from a deficit. And so you see Rocky, Martha are working for their identity rather than from their identity. And there's a religious and an irreligious form of this. It seems that Rocky is kind of more of the irreligious form. I'm going to find it in a creative thing. If, I could, if I'm a good fighter, then I know I'm special. And Martha's doing it more out of just kind of her performance, more of a religious. So religious is like, I'm going to keep all the rules and somehow earn right standing with God. You can never do that. You already have a right standing in God through Jesus Christ. You don't need to achieve it or earn it. You don't obey God to get his blessing. You have his blessing in his riches in Christ Jesus. Therefore, you will want to obey him. So there's a religious form of that, and there's an irreligious form. You can see it in the prodigal son's story. Remember the two sons? You know, in, in the 15th chapter of Luke, where one son took his inheritance and went out and spent it on wild living. That's the guy that thinks, hey, uh, I'm going to break all the rules or make up my own rules, and I can find happiness apart from God. He came up empty. But the one that was more lost than the younger brother was the elder brother. He left the father without leaving the farm. He was empty. He was messed up. He was horrible to be around. And that's how Martha's displaying right here. She's, this is this almost a self-righteousness kind of a holier-than-thou, kind of this religious effort to try to fill up the emptiness inside when she's not realizing she already has everything she needs in Jesus Christ. So those are the two forms. Now, now seriously, do you ever think you can fill the bottomless pit in your soul with religion or irreligion? Do you think there's anything other than Christ that can actually satisfy you? you think a bigger home, better car, Having your kids turn out right the way you want them to, any of those things will ever actually satisfy the deepest longing in your soul? No. But that's what drives us. It drives us crazy. That's why we have the stress and the anxiety and the worry in our life. So how do I know the difference between whether I'm working for my identity or from my identity? If you're working for your identity, success will inflate you. It will go to your head and failure will deflate you, it will go to your heart, it will devastate you. When you work from your identity, you have an inner dynamic of, of grateful joy that empowers the greatest effort and work. You're always working out of a, abundance. That's why you can have two people working hard. One is always weary and is working, and the other is always resting even when he's working. One's working for their identity, desperate, Desperate to fill up the emptiness inside. Glory hunger. And the other one's filled up with all the glory of God. And it's an overflow of their life. And therefore, they're able to have good boundaries and margin in their life. They know when to say no. They have margin. It begins to work as an overflow in their life. So what is a full tank? That takes us to the next question. What is a full tank? So you need to be aware when your tank is low. And once again, what is it? It's insecure about God's love. It's internal restlessness, irritability with others. But what is a full tank? Look at verse 40. Notice what Martha says here. My sister has left me to serve alone. So Mary has been serving. 
So we know that by her statement, tell her then to help me. If you're going to keep your tank full, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry and distractions from your life. That's what we talked about last week. One of the statements, we'll continue to repeat that statement throughout this series. Now, unlike Martha, Mary seems to have a healthy sense of, of good boundaries and margin. You'll need to get the notes from last week because we actually define both of those, what that means. So you can kind of study that to understand what boundaries and margin. So it seems as though Mary has a good sense of boundaries and margin based on God's purpose and priorities for her life. Now, I like using this statement, we must ruthlessly eliminate hurry and distractions from our life. Why would, I, why would we use that word? Well, there's an interesting place in the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in Matthew 5, 29 through 30, where Jesus says this. It's, it's ruthless. Oh, my goodness. It's blood-curdling. It's just almost like, What? He says, if your right hand causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do? I cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do? Plug it out. If that was true, I'd be up here like this. <laughs> hey, everybody. Of course, I'd be blind too. Okay, so he doesn't mean that literally. He means it figuratively. Here's what I believe that he means by that. Once you've tasted of the superior pleasures of knowing Christ, the inferior pleasures of sin lose their appeal and you will go to extreme measures to remove anything that interferes with your relationship with Christ. I think that's what he's saying. When you understand what you have in me, you're going to take drastic measures to remove whatever it is in your life so that you can have more of me. That's the Christian life. See, see the mindset here is this, to keep this is worth anything. We must ruthlessly eliminate hurry and distractions from our life so that we can know him better, we can spend more time with him. You get a glimpse of him and what you have in him, oh my goodness, game over. Game over. Let's, uh, let's look at A.W. Tozer's quote. Let's, in fact, let's say this quote together. Just make sure you guys are still with me here. Let's, uh, let's quote it together, nice and loud together. You guys ready? Here we go. One, two, three. We're here to be worshipers first and workers only second. The work done by a worshiper will have eternity in it. That's a powerful quote. We're here to be worshipers first. That's, what you're, that's your first calling. Your first calling is to be a worshiper first and a worker only second. The work done by a worshiper will have eternity on it. Worshippers first, workers second. Worshippers will always, listen to me, worshipers will always outwork, outlast workers. Workers eventually get burned out. But worshipers, lovers, stay with it for the long haul. Your worship rises or falls with your concept of God. If your worship this morning is flat, it's because you've got a low concept of God. The more you get to know Him, oh my goodness, the more you will ascribe ultimate worth and value to God in such a way that it will engage and energize your whole being. Nothing will fill you up more than to worship Him and to exalt Him and to enjoy Him. But you've got to have a right view of Him. And the more your view of Him is right, oh my goodness, the more you will worship Him. 
and ascribe to him ultimate worth and value. No one can satisfy you like him. No one fills you with hope like him. No one gives you joy like him. You realize that. You love him. You worship him. You fill your mind and your heart with the beauty and the value of who he is and what he's done for you. And that's, that's part of this idea of, of filling your tank. Now, if you worship God before you work, then you can worship God in your work. That's the goal. So worship God before you work, and then you can worship God in your work. So throughout the day, you're worshiping Him. Now, what's interesting about the Jewish culture is, do you guys know when the, their day begins? When does the day for Jewish culture begin? Anybody? Sun, sundown. So that's the beginning of their day. Starts with rest. What's the beginning of their week? Sabbath. So their day, their week, begins with rest, and then out of that rest, so you worship, and then you work. You worship and you work. Now, for Christians, our Sabbath is when? Anybody? It's on Sunday. Why is it on Sunday? Why did it move from Saturday to Sunday for Christians? Because that's when Jesus was resurrected from the grave. And so we are to rest. And so, as I said last weekend, so you've got to learn how to divert daily. You should experience Sabbath rest. Uh, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, so understanding Sabbath rest is connecting with Him, hitting the reset, filling your heart up with His beauty and glory and all that He has for you and who He is in you and through you. So you're hitting that reset, so you, there should be that Sabbath rest. Divert daily, withdraw weekly, abandon annually. Where you're just filling up your heart, filling up your tank with who He is and, and engaging Him and experiencing Him and knowing Him. That's important. And what is that? It is being with Jesus. That's your next fill in the blank. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet. Now, what does that mean, sitting at the Lord's feet? To sit at someone's feet was a technical expression in ancient times to indicate the relationship between the disciple and the rabbi. So disciples were not with their rabbis just during formal teaching times, but they were with their rabbis everywhere they would go. This is critical to understand, this idea. Everywhere they would go and everything that they would do, just as the disciples were always with Jesus. And it was a lifestyle decision of always being with your rabbi. Now, Jesus is no longer here on this planet, but we are indwelt by His Holy Spirit. So our rabbi is always with us through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He's always with us. So we cultivate this level of intimacy that I'm always with the Lord. He's always with me. I'm learning to practice His presence. So I, I do need to have a time set aside where I engage Him, but from that, I need to walk with Him throughout the day knowing He's always there, never to leave me or forsake me. So it is this idea of, uh, of when she sat at the Lord's feet, this picture here, it, it is being in relationship with Jesus, but also submitting to His authority and leadership. To sit at someone's feet was a formal word that meant being under their authority and leadership. Acts 4, 34 through 35 helps us to understand that. Best commentary for Scripture is Scripture. They sold their land and took their money and put it at the apostles' feet. So their money was no longer theirs. It was at the disposal of the apostles. So when I commit my life to Christ, my life is no longer mine, it's His. He's calling the shots for my life. I surrender all of my life to Him. And I gave you a couple verses to kind of help you walk through that. You can study this next week, Luke 6, 4, 
646 and Mark 834. Here's what I know. Whatever you give up to follow Christ is nothing compared to what you gain in Him when you cultivate this level of intimacy with Him. Intimacy with God is life's most satisfying reality. You're learning to walk with Him every day. Nothing compares, nothing competes, or nothing can complete you like being with Jesus, cultivating intimacy with Him. So what does it mean to enjoy fellowship with Christ? Let me do, just do a little quick experiment here and see if you can track with me. Give you an illustration. Think of the kindest person you know, just for a moment. Who's the kindest person you know? The most loving person, the wisest person, the most patient person, the most intelligent person, the strongest person, the most tender-hearted person, the happiest person, the most peaceful person, the humblest person, the most courageous person, the most articulate person, the person with the greatest sense of humor, the most generous person. Now, think about what it is like to enjoy these persons when their personalities are at their best. Then combine all the good traits of all of those persons into one person. You know what I, where I'm going with this, don't you? Yeah. And then increase those traits to perfection and quality and to infinite beauty in how they are proportioned in exercise, and you're getting a dim glimpse of spending time with Jesus. There is no one like Jesus. When you begin to spend time with Him and get to know Him, oh my goodness, He will transform your life. The more you get to know Him, the more you love Him, the more you want to spend time with Him. That's just natural response. Just absolutely breathtaking, His beauty, His glory. I, when I began to encounter Jesus years ago, I've never been able to get over Him. And my love and, and commitment to Him continues to grow through the years. So focus on being with Jesus, communion, and you'll become more like Him. You'll begin to develop His character. That's the key. Becoming like Jesus, that's your next fill in the blank. Becoming like Jesus. And she sat at His feet and listened to His teaching. You need to hear His teaching. You need to assimilate His teaching into your life. And it will begin to give you a biblical worldview. You will build your life on a rock-solid foundation when you do that. That's what she did. She, she began to hear and understand his teaching. The word here for teaching is fascinating. It means it's logos, where we get our word logic. It's, he's giving, he pours into us the very meaning, hope, and happiness that we can find in him that can't be found anyplace else. And this is what begins to shape our worldview and transform our life. Gave you some great verses there you can study on your own. Romans 12, 2, and then Psalm 1, 1 through 3 talks about having this worldview and the difference it makes in our lives. Now, here's what I do to connect deeply with, with Christ. I would not have ever survived ministry if I haven't, hadn't done this for years. I've done this for decades, both my wife and I. We just came off a four-week vacation, man. We swam in the ocean of God's grace and truth. We just spent a lot of time just enjoying God's presence and enjoying each other's presence. It's just amazing. My heart was so filled up after this vacation. And I try to do this daily. I try to do this weekly. I try to do this annually. And uh, there's just something about it. And so I, I read, when I study Scripture, I read for depth more than for distance, though I get through the complete Bible in a year. 
But as I read, God will come after me, boom, with a particular verse, and I'll dive into that verse a little bit in more detail. And I do a lot of prayerful meditation of Scripture. And so I'll take a, uh, a three-by-five card, write the verse down that I believe that God's speaking to my heart, begin to ask a lot of questions about that verse. Oh, I'll do a screenshot of it and take it with me throughout the day and meditate on that verse. And I'll begin to pray that verse. Slow, prayerful reflection and meditation on Scripture is a lost art in our hyperactivity and attention deficit disorder contemporary culture. It's shot. Most people do not know how to sit and reflect and uh, to step out of the traffic and take a long, loving look at your high God. Most people don't know how to do that, and they're missing out. Therefore, that's why we got so much anxiety and stress and worry in our life. We're not finding our rest in Him because we don't know how to sit at His feet, surrender our lives, and meditate on His Word, and take His Word in. And, and, and allow it to begin to transform our life. And what we do is we're taking the truths of who He is. They may be clear to our mind, but they need to be real to our hearts before it begins to transform our lives. So you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry and distractions and clutter from your life. You are not going to get close to the heart of Christ if all you do is Jesus on the run. You need to sit and soak and bask and savor the riches of His glory. That's what you were created to do. Nothing will fill your heart like that. I love that. That's the best part of my day. I absolutely love it. I can't get enough. Now, in the early days, when I first started this, I'd kind of watch the clock. I don't even watch the clock other than the fact that I've got appointments and other things I've got to do. But man, my day just can fly by. I could spend, I could spend my whole day with the Lord. I mean, that's how good he is. If you're bored with Christ, it ain't him. It's you. You may not be seeking him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You do that. If you do that, you seek him with all of your heart, you're going to find him. You're going to experience him. Okay. I didn't mean to go off on that, but yes, I did. Okay. And so what I do is I turn scripture into a conversation with a person. So when, he, when I have a verse pop off the page like that, for instance, this last week, I'm working through the book of Job. And I came across this verse. This verse came after me this last week. I knew the Holy Spirit was speaking to my heart. And it's Job 13, 15. And anytime you're studying, there's two broad categories. That the, the verse will either give you a, a, something that you need to believe or something you, you need to change in your behavior. So it's a belief or behavior verse, okay? And so sometimes it'll be both. This particular verse was both. And here is the verse, Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. Oh my goodness, that verse came after me. I always know that the Holy Spirit's speaking to my heart. I go, oh my, wow. Here's what struck me as I was studying this. Here's a dude that lost all 10 of his kids. He lost all of his wealth. He lost his health. And he's in a small group with three miserable friends who are dogging the living daylights out of him because they're moralist. And yet he says, even though he slay me, I will trust in him. I don't fully understand all that's going on down here, all that, but I'm all in regardless of what goes on. 
I'm trusting him. I have too much of a rich, robust relationship with him. I understand he still loves me. He's still going to take care of me regardless of what goes down. Oh, my goodness. Lord, please help me to have the, the belief of Job. Did you know that Job never saw why he was suffering? But he saw God, and that was enough. And what's interesting about this verse, he says this. He says, though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. This is what that means, is that faith is not the absence of questions, doubts, and fears, but it's bringing your questions, doubts, and fears to God. So Job's saying, hey, you know what? I'm going to bring my questions, doubts, and fears to God, but yet I'm still all in. He's captured my heart. I love him. I'm committed to him. And I might not be able to explain what's going down in my life, I don't think he ever really could and really understood, but he saw God, and God was enough. So my belief, Lord, I want to have that kind of faith in you. Behavior, I want to regularly bring my questions, doubts, and fears to you as Job is and still be all in regardless of how, how it turns out, whatever the outcome is, because I trust you that much. God spoke to my heart. Oh, my goodness. It was rich. It was good. God wants to speak to your heart. So you have to learn how to turn Scripture into a conversation with a person. Get to know Him. Interact with Him. You can walk with Him. You can know Him. You can experience Him. And this is out of extravagant love for Jesus. So, being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, out of extravagant love for Jesus. We're almost done. I'll give you the last fill in the blanks. You can study this stuff on your own. But here's, here's this point. This is a really, really important point. This is what will motivate you. Verse 41. This is what Jesus says about Mary. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, one of the premier examples of radical extravagant love for Jesus in the New Testament is a young single woman named Mary of Bethany. Mary of Bethany is mentioned in three occasions in Scripture. Each time she is sitting at the feet of Jesus. I gave those to you, those addresses. You can study that on your own. I would encourage you to study that. It's quite profound. Out of those three times, two of those occasions, Jesus publicly affirms her life of extravagant love for him. She is the prototype of total abandonment to God. That is normal Christianity. She never has a public ministry that we know of. She never is mentioned in the book of Acts. She never mentioned in church history. She wasn't known in the court of man, but she moved the heart of God deeply. Jesus took notice of her. She will be known forever for her extravagant love for Jesus. That's what I want to be known for. I want people to know my extravagant love for Jesus. I, that's what I want for you. If you don't like identifying with Mary of Bethany, identify with King David in the Old Testament. He had the same radical extravagant love for Jesus, for God. He didn't know quite Jesus. He knew there was a Messiah coming based on Old Testament prophecy. But he had that same extravagant love. Read Psalm 27.4. That's what I want for us. The Lord wanted us to know about her and how he felt about how she loved him. She moved the heart of God. When you pour your heart out to him, you move the heart of God. 
He says, one thing is necessary. This is the most important thing you can do. This is your number one calling. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good, the pleasant, the joyful, the happy. And this will not be taken from her. You know what he's saying here? Is that there is a love and a joy and a peace in Christ that all the success in this world can never give you and all the suffering in this world can't take from you. This can't be taken from her. You have this intimacy with him. And all of, of that which it brings to you, as we said last weekend, it brings you love and a joy and a peace and a, and a productivity that you could never find on your own and, and an ability to hear and walk with God and experience God and like you've ever known before. And so, how do you keep your tank full? Here's your last three fill in the blanks. You got homework, okay? You got to study this out on your own. Number one, recognize that your most uncontrollable emotions come from from looking to something or someone to give you only what Christ Jesus can give you. We're going to unpack this more next weekend, what that means when we look at our emotions, our, our anger issues that we have with that. Recognize that your most uncontrolling emotions come from looking to something or someone to give you only what Christ Jesus can give you. Number two, replace the worship of your idols. That's what that is. It may be a good thing, but you've, you've elevated that good thing into an ultimate thing in your life. It can be a marriage, it can be your kids, it can be your job, it can be money in the bank, your career, any number of things. If I just have this, I'll know I'm not a bum. That's what you're saying about some created thing. It's called an idol. Replace the worship of your idol with the worship of the only Lord who forgives you when you fail Him and fulfills you when you get Him. Here's your last one. Rejoice. This is what we've got to get good at. Rejoice in the person and work of Christ until your heart is resting and releasing its grip on anything else it thinks that it can't live without to the degree your heart is satisfied by enjoying the love, beauty, and worship and wisdom of Jesus Christ is to the degree the things in this world will no longer control you. Next weekend, reset from burnout to balance. Don't go to, to bed angry. Ephesians 4, 26 through 27, 29 through 32. How do you work through those past hurts? And so, hey, I'll be up front at the end of the service along with any available elders and leaders. If you are new, we'd love to meet you. If you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you. If you've got any questions, we'd love to answer those questions for you. Let's take a moment. Let's kind of walk through what we've just learned here today. What is God speaking to you? Father God, we love you. Thank you for the gospel, the good news that you have reconciled us to yourself by sending your son to die in our place for our sins and all who repent and believe in you have everlasting life. I pray for those this morning that need to do that that they would acknowledge their sin that separates them from you and, and believe that Christ died on the cross in their place for their sins and confess him as Savior and Lord. I pray that they would give their life to you. Lord, let us be more aware, have that emotional intelligence to see the insecurity that we have about your love and the internal restlessness that that produces and the irritability with others. And God, when we recognize that, may we learn how to, to full, fill our tanks by being with you, becoming more like you, motivated out of an extravagant love for you. Lord, help us to recognize those things that are competing for our heart's deepest loyalties and affections away from you and replace the worship of those things with the worship of you, our only true Lord and Savior. And Lord, teach us how to rejoice in you and your work until our hearts are resting and releasing our grip on anything else we think we can't live without. We pray these things for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' beautiful name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. Love you guys. God bless you.